Hi, I'm Harriet Smith and welcome to Dietitian Cafe where we will be discussing the world of nutrition and dietetics from studying to academia, clinical to industry and the NHS to freelancing. But today we have with us Dr. Brian Power. Brian is an award-winning registered dietitian and lecturer in nutrition at University College London. He also works part-time at UCLH Hospital as a honorary bariatric dietitian. Prior to joining UCL, Brian served as a lecturer in nutrition and dietetics at London Metropolitan University and the University of Hertfordshire, and he also has experience of working as a clinical dietitian in hospitals throughout Ireland. Brian's interested in understanding and changing eating and physical activity behaviours and the development and evaluation of behaviour change interventions. Hi, Brian. Thank you for joining us today. Good morning. I'm blushing after that. <laughs> it's all downhill after this. <laughs> no, we're really looking forward to hearing more about your, your research and what you've been up to. I know you've been very busy over the last few months. Mm-hmm. So just to get us going, can you tell us a little bit more about where your whole interest in nutrition and dietetics stems from, first of all? Yeah. Um, so when I was about 15 or 16, we had a careers teacher and they were advising us to start thinking about what we want to do with the rest of our lives. <laughs> and so I started to have a think about that. And I was playing hurling at the time, which is a, an Irish national sport. And we had a dietitian actually coming in, giving us our under 16 team a talk about nutrition. And I just asked, do you get paid for this? Can you, can you do a job for it? Uh, can you get a job doing this? And she's like, yes, I'm a dietitian. That's what I do. So long story short, I went into the department in Kilkenny, uh, St. Luke's Hospital, and I shadowed a dietitian there and I really liked the work that they did. Um, so you could do sports nutrition, you could do clinical work. So I liked the variety and that's where it stemmed from. So it's from my participation in sport. Great. So that was around the age of 16. 16, yeah. So then did you did you do your science A levels or did you? Yeah. So then at 16, 17, 17 and 18, then I went on to do my what you call your Irish leaving certificate, which would be the A level equivalent, equivalent here. Yeah. Um, so I did. Yeah, chemistry, physics, and I always was interested in that. I played with the notion of doing law for a while, but then I was like, no, that's just not me. Um, I want to try and help people with their health more. Um, and so yeah, I did that, and then I went to Aberdeen after I did my Irish Leaving Certificate. So I got accepted in the Rob- Robert Gordon University. And that was um, a Bachelor of Science? In yeah, a Bachelor of Science in Nutrition and Dietetics four-year programme. Four years. Yeah. And did that have placements in, in different it, hospitals? It did. So at that time it was ABC. I think it still is around the rest of England, only London is a bit different. So it was your three blocks of placement mm-hmm. scattered mm-hmm. over the four years of study. Great. And towards the end of your degree, did you have any idea of what you wanted to do with your dietetic degree or were you sort of... Yeah, so I mean, I'm a bit of an outlier, I suppose. So um, I, maybe in first year, I was like that, a nine, two-year-old. Why? 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 So I was always questioning things when I was around, um, to the annoyance maybe of some people. Uh, <laughs> but I always thought I did it in a nice, pleasant way. Um, so I was also interested in trying to find out why we're doing things the way we're doing it. How can we improve it? And why do people um, not follow our advice? Or why do they follow our dietary advice? And so my interest in doing research at that point really was from the get-go, really. And, and that's obviously something that you've managed to shape into your career, particularly in, in terms of your research that you've done. Yes, yeah. So when I was training, it was we did metabolism, did all the basic physiology and uh, biomolecular science. But I was I was always more interested in how people are eating, why people are eating, as opposed to the processes that inform our metabolism, mm-hmm. which is important. But that wasn't my key kind of flavour that I was interested in the most. Yeah. And so that informed why I wanted to do what I'm doing now. And we'll come on to some of the research that you've yeah. done in behavioural change later on in the podcast. Yeah. So just tell us a little bit about how you went from sort of graduate dietitian to the researcher that you, that you are today. Yeah, um, so I'd always see it as not either or, so it's like two sides of the same coin. Um, so I'm a dietitian, well, I'm an Irishman at first and then I'm a dietitian. <laughs> um, but I've always been a dietitian, I just see being research orientated as a way to make myself a better dietitian. Um, and so there's a saying, I think, yesterday's research is today's practice and today's research is tomorrow's practice. So I always had that drive to try and make a difference um, in how we do practice and in improving my own work. So, but yeah, essentially that's how I focus my research and then I try to adopt it and practice as best I can. 
So did you go on to do your PhD soon after graduating as a dietitian or did you work clinically for a while after? Yeah, so again, so the research stemmed very much from the first year, but I went, I really had a, I suppose you could call it a finding yourself moment. I went to India for uh, six months and I did a um, volunteering role there within uh, Rajasthan and Mm. I did research um, helping malnutrition in the community there. And it was really kind of from that moment I said, right, I need to do this kind of formally, research formally, like training as a dietitian. I'm interested mm-hmm. in it, but how do you get a how do you get credentials in doing research? And a PhD was the obvious choice. So it was about a year and a half after I graduated that I wanted to do a PhD. Um, I asked around, did I need to do an MSc directly from BSc? The common myth was that you did. Uh, but it turns out you didn't because I didn't and I got onto a PhD program and from there I then yeah developed my PhD project and I also did some local work alongside it as well to keep up my practice so to keep up my uh, real world view. That must have been tough fitting that all in. <laughs> yeah well I had again I had four years of so most PhDs are three years So I had four years um, and the selling point of the PhD was that it was a medical research council funded PhD that had a leadership component alongside it. So it was the research funders acknowledging not everybody works in academia or there's not the opportunity. So it's trying to um, develop other transferable skills such as leadership um, within that as well. So that was really a selling point for me. Mm. And can you just talk us through perhaps for the listeners who are not familiar with how um, doing a PhD works? How do you go about finding these opportunities? So my, my go-to was my previous um, undergraduate lecturer, who was also my personal tutor, uh, Susan Lenny. Uh, hello, Susan, if you're listening. Uh, so <laughs> she always kind of directed me towards where's the best place to do some research. And it was really finding, find a PhD was a website that I looked at. Um, also as I said, Susan Lenny and other contacts to find out projects that were going along. Um, I initially wanted to do it in cystic fibrosis, um, dietary adherence within cystic fibrosis, but there wasn't the funding available for that particular topic, mm. or it would have required me to spend a bit more time um, trying to identify charities maybe uh, to get funded. But really find a PhD, asking supervisors in the area as well. So I asked the health psychology group in Aberdeen, and there was people there, and I asked to meet up with them to see what's whether their work could align with what I'm wanting to do and it turns out that it did. And it's all fallen into place. And then. I think so, yes. <laughs> they might have different views. <laughs> <laughs> so as part of your PhD, Brian, you conducted several studies, two of which have been published. Uh-huh. Um, one of your studies was a systematic review of randomised control trials looking at the effects of work-based interventions in dietary and um, physical activity for weight management amongst healthcare professionals. Yes. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, so my first, as you said, it was a systematic review and I was really following, because I was funded by the Medical Research Council um, body, they developed a guideline around developing and evaluating interventions and that was a core goal of what I was trying to do, was trying to develop a behaviour change programme. And the first step they recommend, um, and rightly so, is a systematic review of the evidence base to see what's been done before, and what are the gaps, and whether actually we need to proceed with that particular work, or whether an intervention is already out there, and so we don't duplicate it unnecessarily. Um, So I did that review, and I found out that there was loads of gaps in this particular area of work. And I suppose the primary take-home was that I... There was no particular interventions out there that I could replicate. And so that's why then I needed to proceed with other studies after that. And when when you were looking amongst healthcare professionals, was that a whole host of allied health professionals or a particular... It was, so it was initially, so nursing was the particular population group, our target population. When I say we, it was myself and my supervisory team and so the health services research unit in Aberdeen. I give to have to give them a plug, uh, and then the health psychology group as well in Aberdeen, and we decided to look at health professionals because, as a wider group, because they all shared within the acute setting the same setting, so the workplace, and so we justified or rationalised that we could get generate some transferable uh, principles from that particular evidence base, and that's why we looked at the wider. So it was every single healthcare professional: nurses, doctors, dietitians, physios 
any research within those groups mm. in the workplace. Mm. And then you went on to do some qualitative interviews with the nurses in, in the studies. Yeah. What did that reveal in terms of barriers and enablers for health professionals eating well at work? Yeah, so that was, I suppose it, it naturally follows that if I'm interested in talking to people or uh, listening to people, that qualitative in, the qualitative interview stage was my favourite part of the PhD. Um, and so what I found, um, interviewing ter- 16 nurses, that they're key barrier so we needed to identify I needed to identify how do we improve the situation so nurses don't eat as we would want them to do in terms of trying to eat um, a healthy dietary pattern uh, they're physically inactive what are the things that are preventing them from achieving what potentially they want to achieve and I found out that it was three pillars of behavior that were affecting their um, capacity to be able to do so and that was capability opportunity motivation um, so within opportunity, for example, it was their physical environment sometimes that prevented uh, nurses from eating healthy. And what that meant is, for example, canteen opening hours. So that was a physical barrier that if nurses were working night shift, they couldn't, there was no food available, so it was food availability essentially. Um, and then the food environment within nursing stations was filled with um, foods that were high in salt, fat and sugar. Um, and so that sometimes compromised their um, ability to eat as they intended potentially. Um, other things such as motivation as well. Um, so nurses were f- uh, frequently reported that they were stressed due to their workload, which was a cause due to staff shortages. So there's all these interconnected factors that there's kind of a pattern or a, a sequelae of issues that led on to another. Um, it's a bit like when they say the causes of the causes. Uh, so it was really all those short, being short-staffed, time-pressured, physical environment, all those conspired and connected to um, prevent nurses from being able to be motivated and have the opportunity to um, eat as they would have wanted to. And do you think that those barriers to eating while at work can apply to other health professionals as well as nurses? Oh, yes, yeah, for sure. So even... From research from that after that, uh, not my own work, but the work of uh, Holly Blake in Nottingham. So she does. A, she's a health psychologist, I believe, by profession, and she does a lot of work around workplace physical activity programs and with health professionals as well. And yeah, it transfers across the board. Um, I think nurses, in particular, and the medical profession in particular, they're the two because they are always mentioned in the in the news. Um, a lot as well but in terms of their working pattern they work they would work potentially the most hours in terms of their night shift and day shifts and so that was a unique kind of variable that is a difficult thing for them to change and for me to change it's more of a policy level issue but all the other workforce um, the food environment the availability accessibility applies to every particular health professional group Knowledge mightn't apply to dietitians, I would hope. Well, uh, I'm not sure about that. When uh, you're in, in the office, as in a barrier. there's always a birthday or it's Christmas. And but that's, always... I suppose, I suppose that, that was the key thing I tried to get away from the research. That I, was, um, I didn't intend to go there in part my kind of um, ulterior motive that, oh, it, no food needs to be available that doesn't meet um, healthy guideline recommendations. Because at the end of the day, nurses are working with people and, and it's a stressful environment uh, people die and that was a thing that was quite mentioned as well so the last thing nurses are going to be thinking about is oh I can't have that carrot cake because Brian said not to or because there's a dietitian visit, visiting me so I didn't want to kind of impose that kind of stereotype and um, so I think that was that was a key thing and it was more around making nurses kind of appreciating nurses actually for what they do um, and not kind of coming in what's what's the barrier what is stopping you um, it was more around kind of yeah understanding where they were coming from, um, and I think and nurses are pre- they really appreciate it. And um, I, the indicator of that was the recruitment I had was I was blown away by the amount of nurses that came forward. They actually said, finally someone is looking out for us, kind of thing, as in their interest in finding out what's what's going on. That and that's really great that that they were so willing to take part in the research, and hopefully yeah. your findings will enable. Um, you know, interventions and pathways to be put in place in more, um, particularly NHS establishments. Yeah, and I did just just to follow up. I did. Um, I was asked to do an article based on my work in the Nursing Standard, 
So if anyone's interested, it's a Royal College of Nursing journal. I suppose it's a bit like Dietetics Today within the yeah, British Dietetics yeah. Association. Yeah. And so I was asked to do kind of a typical day of a nurse. How would you advise somebody to overcome all these barriers? But also, how do you enhance the facilitators as well? Because that's sometimes forgotten that we focus a bit too much on what's stopping us. But actually, there's other things that actually are, are helpful as trying to not lose sight of that as well. So what were your top takeaway tips for health professionals trying to eat, eat well at work? So it, so, it dep- so I framed it as if it was a confidence problem. It was more around um, trying to improve, so what we call self-efficacy. And so there's things that we can do. So for example, thinking about past experiences of achievement can increase your self-efficacy in and your confidence in thinking that you can achieve another outcome regarding, let's say, let's say a nurse potentially thinks snacking is a problem. They would say that, oh, I snack too much during the day. How can I stop that? And so based on what they're saying, then it's kind of tailoring a particular strategy around that to improve your confidence um, in how to do that. If it was a motivational um, problem, so you'd always do like a, so you have a medical diagnosis in behavior, you'd call it, behavioral diagnosis and so if it was a motivational problem that that was arisen you tried to do strategies such as weighing up pros and cons of following a particular way of eating um, and so from that nurses can or people in general can become motivated um, if they can accentuate the pros and then maybe not place so much emphasis on the cons so you're sort of encouraging them to think through their problems mm. and empowering them to come up with their own solutions as yeah. opposed to telling them exactly or even things such as beliefs about consequences so depending on so if we always link well the the traditional media always links eating healthy being active to weight loss but actually there's a whole wealth of other health outcomes health benefits in terms of consequences of eating a certain way that people can think about including nurses and that might motivate people so for example walking a lot what taking a 10-15 minute walk the benefits to mood for example if people think about that more holistically then that might motivate people to to be physically active similarly similarly if people start cooking and that kind of makes them feel happy or it makes them connect with people a bit more then that's another beneficial social outcome of doing that so it's so it's really there's no kind of one answer it depends on the scenario but they're some types of examples that um, I came up with or that I've encountered in my own practice as well. Mm. And earlier on you mentioned that you identify canteen hours to be an issue yeah. and I know there's been lots of talk on sort of vending machines not necessarily having the healthiest of options available yeah. to staff at work. On a wider level how do you think that organisations such as NHS hospitals can make some small improvements to better enable um, you know, dietary and physical activity choices that their employees are making? Yeah, so I think um, a lot of, so, well, recently, so there was the sequin target. I'm not sure if your listeners are familiar with it. So the sequin target, so it's the quality improvement indicators, essentially, that NHS providers are funded if they meet certain outcomes. And so that was one way regarding um, staff health and well-being. That was a sequin target. Unfortunately, at the beginning of this year, it was, remo- it was removed um, as a target. So... I would have suggested that that's a good way to try and uh, make sure that that happens. But I think with the food, so it's a food supply issue, really. Um, I would recommend working with the local dietetic department. Um, I don't think that happens uh, often enough. Um, Also, I think so dietitians could be involved more in occupational health. Mm -hmm. Um, I know in, I think it's guys in St. Thomas Hospital, I'm sure they'll correct me if I'm wrong, but they have an occupational health department there that has a dietitian that looks at the canteen food provision mm. uh, looks at the nutritional quality of food and seeing if it can be um, tailored or changed to make it the health pro- the nutritional profile a bit more um, healthier so that's I think yeah, just engaging with dietitians because we are unbiased but it's it's true we are the experts on being able to partner with um, CEOs of NHS trusts yeah and, and do you think that's um, an area that our profession perhaps needs to work on, sort of raising awareness of the, the meaningful work that we can do to help yeah, improve it, things? Yeah, it's not just raising. I think 
raising awareness can go so far. I think it's more, I said I wouldn't say it before I came, but we're in the midst of a, an election. I think it's getting more political. Dietitians need to get more political, mm. um, need to get more involved in influencing, um, knocking on people's doors, kind of advocating for, for change, advocating for our USB um, within this area. So raising awareness is one thing. You can do that a variety of ways, but I think it's around being more kind of politically active. Responding to calls as well is another key thing. Um, so consultations, getting involved in uh, nice guideline recommendations around um, strategies that can improve workplace health. Mm-hmm. So we've, we've got a little bit more work to be doing. Perhaps. Just a little bit more. but And again, it's not... Yeah, so I suppose that the... Yeah, to counter that, I wouldn't expect everybody to be of that ilk. And I, there's many ways to change it. Yeah, so it's not to kind of, if you don't do that, you're useless. That's not what I'm trying to say. It's more that for those who are motivated, that is that is another way to be able to try and influence. Raising awareness is does have its own merits and it is, it's necessary, but it's not entirely sufficient as other strategies. Mm-hmm. So I don't want people to go away thinking that if I'm not politically engaged, I'm not worth anything. That's that's certainly not the case. Yeah, different ways to get to the end Yeah, goal. there's different ways. Yeah. And different personalities have, have different skills at doing it. Definitely. So you've won um, a Public Health England award recently for your um, public health research. I'm blushing here. Congratulations. Yeah. <laughs> we'll go on to the many other awards that you've won oh, later on. Yeah. I'm um, just waiting for that Oscar nomination to come. <laughs> But can you tell us more about the next steps in terms of your, your clinical research? Yeah, so at, at the moment, so it's, it's, so any, I think, early career researchers, so anyone within five years of graduating from a PhD programme will testify to just a casino-type landscape out there in terms of trying to get funding. Uh, so what I've been trying to do is, and what I mean by that is, it's really a lottery in terms of you get funded. Um, and people waste so much time drafting grants and trying to get funded I have I can't I haven't monitored maybe I should practice what I preach and monitor what I do in terms of the time I spend writing grant applications Uh, but I have gone down the avenue of doing lecturing doing research and working with um, undergraduate and postgraduate students to come up with ideas um, on projects Um, and I kind of put it out there that I'm interested in dietary adherence I'm interested in what helps people initiate change um, implement it and maintain it and so I put up programs of research and so one example is I'm doing work on uh, people with celiac disease following gluten-free dietary advice um, and I'm currently in the midst of doing a systematic review on that so following the same so looking at adherence to yeah dietary adherence to gluten-free yeah. um, dietary advice uh, for people with celiac disease and from that trying to come up with an intervention that helps um, and supports people doing that with celiac disease to do that it applies then equally to people who've done um who've undergone bariatric surgery um as well so trying to improve their dietary adherence to advice um and i've also given advice to other people around there was a colleague um that was asking around dietary adherence to with people with crohn's disease for example as Mm -hmm. well to the dietary advice that's given so these principles apply to many different um, population groups, mm-hmm. um, but mine is particular on celiac disease, people with celiac disease, and who followed bariatric surgery. Sure. Okay, and we'll come on to your work at um, University College London later, and your role mm-hmm. of mentoring students in who are interested in research. And yeah. um, just before we go on to that, can you tell our listeners a little bit more about the research <coughs> publication process? So for yeah. people who are interested in, perhaps are already working um, clinically, but they're interested in getting involved in research at some point, yeah. how can they go about securing funding for, for some research that they might like to do? Yeah, so I, I suppose I, I, uh, I, I opened with a, a pessimistic view on getting funding, perhaps because I haven't been successful myself in getting a big grant. But again, it's a bit like influencing. There's other avenues apart from the titans of funding such as the Medical Research Council, the Wellcome Trust. First go to anyone in, as a dietitian who's invo- want, interested in doing research, apply to the GET trustees within the British Dietetic Association. They have funding available for dietitians that want to do research. And research is not just your all-encompassing um, 
bells and whistles randomized controlled trial it's things as well just uh, questionnaires people might be working that they have they've identified problems in their service they want to do an audit so an audit technically for ethics is not research but it's still a way of um, informing practice um, and service evaluation so that's the way of doing research funding wise the british dietetic association if you're working with a particular condition that has a charity aligned with it charities often uh, give funding for that if you're interested in so right now i'm doing some work on technology-based um, interventions there's a lot of funding from digital innovators so they have funding available that aligns with or they might be interested in maybe supporting infant feeding for example because that's one i was involved in recently and there's innovators that want to give money for people like dietitians who have the know-how in in doing that and that's another avenue um i suppose then the traditional are the research funders um the ones that i've just listed um equally link up with your local university if you have one or any uh, people that you know in universities some you well most universities uh, if they're university they should anyway have internal small grants so they might have five thousand here two thousand there ten thousand another semester um, and linking up with any academics within the institutes that's another way of getting it um what else yeah and just talking to people just keeping up to date with e-zines so the british dietetic association research bite um e-zine uh the efad so the european one as well and signing up to news alerts for the different agencies um as well like the, the research funders that might have pockets of money here and there so there's lots of opportunities there's out lots, there. Yeah. It's, it's about going out and actively seeking them. Yeah, and signing up to the alerts, uh, listening to podcasts like this <laughs> will hopefully head, help spread the message. And I used to think when I was starting off that, yes, you needed to go for the all singing, all dancing. I probably wasted a lot of time doing that if I had maybe been more informed about the odds of me as a first-time principal investigator getting that one million grant then I wouldn't have gone the path I went down. I would have went, you kind of start, start slow and steady um, and then kind of build your way up through that. Not, it doesn't apply to everyone, but I think statistically-wise, probability-wise, that's the best way of doing it. Mm. Systematic reviews as well, I just will say, you don't need to have funding to do that. Uh, so it doesn't cost anything. It's a desk-based study. It's a, it's a valid... It's the hierarchy, the top systematic view, meta-analyses. Some would argue there's maybe a excess of systematic reviews that's leading to research waste but the same people who say that have published about 200 of those so that could be for another podcast episode yeah whether that's heroic (laughs) or not I don't know but that's another way of doing it and that can maybe inspire people to read your research and then lead on Mm. to the more labour intensive type well systematic Mm. reviews are labour intensive but the more uh, research that involves participants recruitment and that takes a bit more time I think a key point you've made is it doesn't have to be these um, sort of gold standard randomised control mm. trials or systematic reviews, even just doing a qualitative interview or yeah. auditing your services within your own NHS trust could add really valuable findings. For sure. I mean, yeah, I mean, that's, yeah, definitely, because that'll just help generate that evidence base, generate those gaps that we have and identify what outcomes that we need to try and address to improve what we're doing. And we will share some of the links to um, the websites that you've recommended in our show notes as cool. well. If people want further information, and of course you're on you're on Twitter as well. I am, yes. Uh, so yeah, I'm pr- probably the best way to get through me is probably Twitter rather than my work email. That sounds a bit odd, but I have the application on my phone, so the alert is always. Where's my work email? I don't. Um, so I, I had a plan to. Just answer emails first 10 minutes of the day, last 10 minutes of the day. And that works. But then obviously you have Twitter and that kind of distracts a bit. But yeah, Twitter DMing me is probably, direct messaging me is probably the best. What's your Twitter handle? Uh, Brian Power, at Brian Power RD. Okay, and we'll definitely share, share yeah. your links to social media. You'll see my cheesy well. smile in the profile, so you can't miss it. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, Prior to meeting today, you and I chatted a bit about um, some of the barriers to accessing scientific research. Yeah. Um, being a writer myself, this is sometimes an issue. Uh-huh. So what are your thoughts on open access versus um, publishing research behind a paywall? And can you explain to our listeners what the differences are? Yes, yeah, so open access is better than research that's 
published behind a paywall. Uh, so that's the first thing to say. The second thing to say, what it means is, is that open access means that everybody can access. So it's openly available. So it's free to access. It's like the NHS. It's free to point of access. Paywalled is essentially you have to be affiliated to university uh, that links in with that journal to be able to access it. And there's a big agenda now within research on making everything open access to ensure that what we're doing, particularly tax fund, taxpayers funded research, gets to the people, the end users who have funded it. Now, not everybody reads journal articles, but it's just, it's a culture shift. So if, if journal articles are open, then that leads on to a way of thinking that, oh, everything we do should be open. And so there's a big initiative around all, the All Trials campaign um, with drug companies to openly, transparently report all of their raw data so that other authors can replicate what they've done to improve the, the certainty and trust. From a research point of view, open access means that you pay um, a particular APC charge, it's called, uh, for the journal, so article processing charge, to have it open access. A paywalled um, article, the researcher doesn't necessarily pay. So it's seen probably incorrectly or it's perceived maybe that paywalled are more prestigious because you're not kind of paying to get your article. So some people might perceive that if you pay somebody to do something, they're going to do it. They're going to take your money and they're going to publish it. Whereas paywall is more, you submit your article, you submit your articles to both, but paywall, you don't uh, pay the uh, funder to get your article process um, published. And is it expensive to publish your article open access? Yeah, so yes, and that's a, that's a barrier. So, um, but every, if you're, again, the system is set up that if you're funded by any big funder, so the MRC, NIHR, they will have some guidelines on making sure that a certain proportion, or all, actually all of your articles need to be open access. So you have, you have money available to meet those costs. It can range from 1500 to 5000 depending on the ranking of the journal. But that's not coming out of your own pocket. That would no, come from the people who coming are from the funder. The funding. So, yeah. so if you had a dietitian who had, a, who had an article mm-hmm. and they did a systematic review, let's say, and they wanted to publish it, it's going to be difficult if they're not funded to get that £5,000 to publish in, I don't know which particular journal that they would aim for, but they're going to potentially go to a paywall, and rightly so, because the cost implications are, are not as great. Um, but that's why universities, so for example, UCL, where I work, they've set up their own open access journal and are accepting publications as well. Um, and hopefully in time, we'll get away from... So generally, paywall art journals have a higher, what they call, impact factor, but that's a inaccurate criteria to judge an article on mm-hmm. in terms of impact factor. It's just like clickbait, really. It's just whoever follows the article more, it gets kind of more hits and it gets more... Um, citations linked to it. Now there is a website that's actually attempting to break down these barriers in terms Uh of um, accessing science which we've talked about before it's called Sci-Hub so for listeners who are not familiar with Sci-Hub it's a website that provides free access to lots of research papers and books without regard to copyright and it does this by bypassing the publisher's paywalls that Brian's just mentioned Mm -hmm. in various ways so do you think Sci-Hub is a good thing, Brian? Is there, is there any bailiffs outside? <laughs> <laughs> uh, is it a good thing? Well, I'll say it depends. So I'll caveat it. So morally, ethically, to if we're talking about... So essentially, we do research, particularly in nutrition and dietetics, to support, to help people, to make a difference in people's lives. So it stands to reason that they should benefit from being able to access, being able to read that. Equally, participants who've taken part in that research, if it's primary research, should also be able to access that. So from that angle, it is a good thing because it's improving the visibility. However, just so that I don't get handcuffed out of this room, it's illegal. So it is breaking copyright. So if you're, but they've done, they have done research on, I'm not sure if it's research or just surveying people's access. And there was a perception that it would be more accessed by peop- uh, middle-income countries who don't have access to these libraries, these databases. However, in the UK, the US, in Europe, people are e- equally accessing Sci-Hub as a way of navigating. And I believe in America, there has been a, a, law ca- a lawsuit against Sci-Hub for billions 
um, to make sure it stops. So the other way, so if you're worried about the legal implications, which I would be as well, the first thing I always do is contact the authors. When you, when you talk about the legal implications, do you mean as a reader trying to access yeah, so the as a, study? Yeah, so as a reader trying to access and you're downloading it, potentially, you, well, you, no, not potentially, you are breaking the law, you're breaking copyright law. But the ethical implications, so you could say though, and I would partly agree that actually, is it not ethically imperative that people get access to it and use it? Um, so there's a bit of a dilemma there. So to break that cognitive dissonance, what I would do is, and I do, is contact the authors for the original, um, of the original paper, and they might uh, submit it to. And I, I say that because I've done it uh, for my systematic review. I didn't have access to some papers, and I emailed the authors. Unfortunately, some passed away if there are old papers, so that was quite a sad thing to, to hear. But uh, normally authors are very responsive, and there was just actually a recent um, systematic review in the clinical Journal of Clinical Epidemiology that actually demonstrate that if you contact authors response rates to get papers to you increase so that's one way another way is looking at things like the science media center nhs behind the headlines to get expert views on the actual article itself however if you want to read the whole paper which i would recommend perhaps it's just if you're in a if you're in a hospital contacting your local uh, the library if you don't have access to that journal um, or if you're in a university setting, contacting the university library to see if they have funds to subscribe to that particular journal. Um, so it's trying to, again, there is many ways of doing it. But Sci-Hub is the most convenient, it's the most timely. Mm. Uh, and but ultimately, it's down to personal choice. It's down to personal choice. And if you're saying would I recommend doing it, the answer is no. Uh, from my Christian upbringing, the guilty conscience would take over if I knew I was breaking the law. So I would always seek uh, the author's um, kind of copy of the article itself. But I'm in a lucky position because I don't have to do that quite a lot at the moment because I have a university resource to be able to do that. Sure. But I would, I totally understand if people don't have that resource. And there's ResearchGate as well, actually. Sometimes authors publish their articles on ResearchGate and it ultimately is important to try and get your hands on the whole article yeah. if you can because we want to avoid just reading abstracts. Or somebody else's interpretation, yes. You, you need to get your own take on what... Yeah, you need to use your own, you're right, your own critical thinking mm -hmm. to be able to do that. In terms of healthcare professionals better disseminating their research findings, um, how do you think we should be doing this? You've, you've mentioned the role that video abstracts can play. Yeah. Can you talk us through that? Yeah, so I did a, uh, so I'm not sure if you, so recently I did a, an, a workshop in, Bel uh, not Belgium, Berlin, um, on video abstracts for the EFAD conference, so the European Federation of Association of Dietitians. I'm just saying, I always say acronyms fully, because I'm all, all, sometimes in meetings that people just acronym overload, and I have no idea what they're saying. So that's why, bear with me while I explain what they mean, even though if people do know what I mean. Um, I have done yeah, a workshop on video abstracts and it's just another way. So they say publish perish or perish. There's another saying video or vanish. So people, when I say people, it depends on your target audience. So if you're trying to get more public engagement of research dissemination, so research circulation, then people, because some, everyone's time pushed, videos are a good way to engage an audience in a shorter space of time and that it can it can produce the same take-home findings as somebody would get through reading the journal article. So what exactly is a video abstract? Is that is that the researcher talking through? Yeah, so there's many different ways. So one of them, one form, is where you have the researcher, like we're doing now in a, in a podcast format, but in a video format, given the take-home findings of... So it's a bit like a, a news media kind of segment where your researcher is explaining the research within three or four minutes. And kind of explaining if it's for people what's the relevance for your life do you need to change anything is there anything to be worried about what are the recommendations after reading this particular paper that's one way another way is using an animation so being a bit creative um, so if you're involved i don't know let's say pediatric dietetics um, you might maybe want to engage parents and use animations of children if you're trying to improve maybe 
fussy eating potentially trying to show what a finding demonstrated through an animation and then narrating it over so providing a voiceover uh, another way at its most basic is using a powerpoint presentation that we're all used to but it's just again narrating it for the person that's reading it and that works quite well for people who don't want to read full journal art the full seven eight page journal article yeah, so video abstracts can can make the, the research a bit more interactive. Yeah. And presumably social media could play a helpful role in helping to amplify. Yeah, so to be well. so what if if I'm gonna recommend one, um so it was one part that's quite funny. So it's it's the tidier template. So it's the template for intervention description and replication. And it was published in the BMJ, so the British Medical Journal. In 2015, 2016, no, 2014, 2015, I think. And that was called the, the, tidy, the tidier, template. tidier template. So it's essentially, uh, it's a way of making sure people report what they've developed transparently to enable replication. So there's no ambiguity about what was done. Um, and they have a video abstract. And they have a segment where they explain the methods in an animation form. And one of them is contacting authors for further details about a study. And they do kind of talking heads, and it's quite funny about the explanations of doing that. Um, but that's one example where people uh, can do it. And those journals are linked to have YouTube channels. I'm on social media all the time. Right, so okay, if there's yeah. a video abstract that popped up on Instagram, yeah. that would be a great way of me staying up to date with my yeah. CPD. So yeah, so yeah, exactly. So it's the same way as looking at somebody cooking the latest uh, fancy recipe of a certain dish. This is the same way of uh, trying to flavor up... Um, research and making it more engaging making it more inclusive making it less ivory tower kind of gathering dust um and that's a, another way of doing it so yes youtube and they can then yeah link it on social media and it all increases reach and visibility and ultimately impact mm, it'd be interesting to see um you know how research progresses and if it does go down that route of sort of video and social media it it, it, or, yeah, it already has so this, and I tried to emphasize, this is not a, a novel, a new, innovative idea. It's been going around since the early noughties. Uh, but it's just kind of now that we're understanding more, when I say we, people are doing research, we understand that people, we don't do it always right, and there's a lot of research waste. And we want people to be more involved in research. And this is just, so it's been kind of repurposed to fit a particular agenda. So in terms of disseminating your own research findings, Brian, you've, mm -hmm. you've been doing quite a bit of health writing recently. And mm -hmm. in fact, Brian was recently awarded the Complete Nutrition Magazine Writer of the Year Award for I'm blushing again. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you very much. So tell us a bit more about how you use your findings and apply that through your health writing. Yeah, so I... That's a very good question. I was trying to think about how to articulate it in a concise manner. Uh, so I... I was essentially getting, I was getting bored of the um, writing journal articles, the same kind of uh, stale academic structure. There was no kind of, although it, 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 it is for a reason, so it's not to dismiss it. It's just that I was getting kind of, it was monotonous for me in terms of IMAR, Introduction Methods, uh, Results, or discussion, results Discussion Conclusion. Um, so I wanted to kind of use my creativity to explain things in a different way. And my main motive was to try and explain, because I was trying to explain research to people, so patients that I work with, um, in a more kind of creative, more relatable manner. And I felt writing for different audiences that are not academic would help me to do that. And so that's why I started to do, I just asked Complete Nutrition if they would be interested in somebody doing a segment on behavior change, because I didn't see, uh, see it out there. And they were like, yeah, we don't really do that. Um, or we do in, in parts, but we don't really have a dedicated kind of series. So I started to do that. Um, and then also I started to do different blog posts for different websites. So um, UCL, where I work, they were wanting me to do a piece um, for dietary adherence. Um, and, I, and I did that and the importance of it and why, why we need to do it. Um, and then next week I'm submitting something for the World Cancer Research Fund. Um, on behaviour change for cancer prevention. Um, so the reason I wanted to do it was to be able to explain what I do. I don't like saying lay audience, but to an audience that are not necessarily trained in this area. 
Mm-hmm. And so complete nutrition, dietitians obviously are and they access it, but there's another wider healthcare team. So nurse, nutrition nurses, gastroenterologists or medics as well to access that resource. And so I wanted to impart the message around the importance of behavior change and what dietitians can do. And I hope I've answered that. Okay. <laughs> well, you mentioned just earlier um, that you've been doing some, some writing for U- UCL. Yeah. Is that the university or the hospital? Sorry, uh, so university. So UCL is University College London. So mm-hmm. UCL is the, the brand that, that's used more widely. Uh, so I've yeah, written uh, articles for UCL for particular... Okay. So there's, a, there's domains of expertise and they asked me to do one for the food metabolism, metabolism food and society domain. So it's all experts involved in food. So that hasn't been published yet? It is, yeah. So it's online. Oh, okay. Yeah, well, so we'll, if we'll if link ta- that in, in the show yeah. notes. But it, so yeah. if you type in Brian Power Dietary Adherence UCL, you'll find the blog. Um, so whilst we're on the topic of UCL, let's move uh-huh. on to your UCLH work as uh-huh. an honorary bariatric dietitian. Uh-huh. So um, you were explaining to me earlier you, you do this work once or twice a month. Uh-huh. Um, can you tell us a bit more about why it's important to maintain your clinical work alongside your research? Yeah, so I, I think for me, so I might not apply to everybody. Um, so with um, with being a, an effective practitioner, so we need to have so to practice evidence based healthcare, we need to have the knowledge, we need to have the experience, and we need to have people's values at the heart of what we do. So I just see it as incumbent on me to not only do the research and to generate evidence, but actually to see if I can practice it. Or to see actually so it's kind of bridging research practice gap and so that's why I do it and I think it is important it's not for everybody so again it's not to say that if you're just doing research what are you doing you're not a dietitian if you're just doing clinical practice I'm not saying that what are you doing you're not a proper dietitian what I'm saying is that for me for my own personal motivation and my own perceived effectiveness I need to teach research and do practice to kind of have it holistically it linked up. However, if you're just doing research, if you're just doing clinical practice, the definition of practice, I think sometimes dietitians forget this, it's not just working clinically. You can do it by doing research, by teaching, working in public health, working in the food industry, doing blogs, doing freelance work. It's, 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 if you look at the definition of what practice is, that's what it involves. Um, so you can do any one of those or a combination of those. And um, you just mentioned teaching and lecturing. How did you personally get involved with lecturing at the various universities that you've worked at? Yeah, so my first experience on of lecturing was to a fourth-year undergraduate nutrition dietetics program in Robert Gordon University. And I lectured about my research in India, in Rajasthan. And so I got a an interest. I was like, oh, this is something maybe I could do more frequently and then equally when I was doing my doing patient work the principles are the same so actually it, it helped me frame what I was doing um, in terms of the, the structure of what I was doing the skills are the same uh, the essential goals are the same you're trying to improve understanding um, you're trying to understand where people are coming from where their gaps are and working together so I didn't really see as time went on actually I find patient work lecturing teaching are all there's some different dynamics to it but the core principles underpinning are the same which is essentially effective communication and so I don't see them kind of any different and it's helped me improve my clinical work and equally doing my clinical work helps me improve my teaching and lecturing and what what are you lecturing your students on at the moment so I lecture them um so I lecture students on behavior change topics so things such as shared decision making uh, motivational interviewing, developing and evaluating interve- behaviour change interventions. Uh, this week I just did uh, digital health programmes. So what's the potential opportunities and pitfalls of that? And then communication skills as well. Um, and that's currently what the main core of what I'm doing. Yeah, so you're a prime example of combining your clinical, your, your research and also lecturing yeah and I think but I think it's not as a yeah I can't stress enough it's 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 definitely not for everybody sometimes I'm thinking even like this afternoon now I'm going away to do a clinic and it's kind of getting up to speed again kind of 
and so sometimes it, it is difficult but I like a challenge and that's it, it kind of motivates me it gets me up in the morning but it's not it certainly is not for for everybody yeah and I think um, that leads us nicely on to um, a few of our quick fire questions just mm-hmm. to <clears throat> excuse me wrap wrap okay. things up yeah so first of all we'd like to know what's been your biggest lesson learned since you've been working in nutrition and dietetics we so working in dietetics we can be equally more effective not equally more effective by listening rather than doing all the talking and i didn't think that was the case at the beginning of my career i thought we always had to talk and talk and talk and try and try and address people's problems and so that's why i'm a um a devout advocate of shared decision making and listening to people Although it might come across in this podcast because I'm doing all the talking. <laughs> You're doing but all that's the because I've been asked questions. <laughs> we had the other way around. We'll see. <laughs> and um, second question, um, what would you say has been your biggest achievement to date? And that could be both professionally or personally. Uh, can I do two? We can let you do two. Two. So two personally. Uh, so I, I see achievement as, as being happy. Um, so I suppose it's having the blessing of being able to marry my wife from Greece would be number one because she makes me content makes me happy she's great she's smart she's funny she's beautiful uh, her name is Demi Vera she's a paediatric dietitian in CLCH so Central London Community Healthcare so that would be one and number two would be actually being able to stay in t- or be still best friends with friends that I had since primary school oh, which is quite difficult in this modern world of people moving people changing so for me that's yeah so I'm more of a personal I wouldn't even call them achievements. They're just things that make me happy. And but that fits I'm proud in, in with your research as well, because you're clearly very interested in people and building connections and yeah. understanding. It might sound cliche. It might sound, oh, God, why is he talking? <laughs> this is so cringy. But it, it's, and I always say that sometimes when I listen to, oh, why? You're just saying this. But actually, I, I see why now people do say it, because actually I've experienced it. And you kind of, as time goes on, you realize what's, yeah, pro- professional, all those awards, they're great. And don't get me wrong, they're fantastic. And I really appreciate people recognizing me uh, even coming along today being asked is is an achievement as well it, it's just that personally that kind of friends and family are kind of my number one yeah yeah and final question we are yeah. in the dietitian cafe today okay so i have to ask you what would be your last ever meal now as i said before we started this is probably the most uh, i spent time thinking about this question so i'll try and do it in 30 seconds so obviously when you're eating, where you're eating is really important. So it would be uh, in Crow Park in Dublin, which is the what Wembley is to English football, Crow Park is what is to Irish hurling, uh, that the sport. So I'd be sitting in a director's box with all my family and friends. I'd have an Irish stew. So I watched The Irishman last night, so I'm maybe a bit biased. So I'd wash an, uh, an Irish stew. I'd have for dessert uh, buwatsa which is a phyllo pastry with a creamy custard inside. It's a Greek dish. And then I'd wash it down with a pint of Guinness and a small shot of Mastica. Wow. And, and I- that would be, for now, I'm thinking it would be my final meal. I won't go into what are the reasons why it's my final meal. <laughs> there could be a couple of scenarios that might lead to that, but that would be it. And I think that final meal sums you up very well. It brings together your... Um, <clears throat> Your interest in hurling, which ultimately yeah. was what got you into dietetics oh, in the first exactly. place. Exactly, it comes full yeah. circle, so that's, so why, very... that's why I spend a lot of time thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> Brian, thanks very much for your time today. Thank you. And it's thank pleasure. you um, to our listeners for joining us. And join us soon for our next episode of Dietitian Cafe.